One of the greatest songs in all of hymnody, I think, there, Pastor Jeff. Great job. Thank you for braving the weather. And uh, it's one of those weird times you're not exactly sure what to do in uh, the services, but I felt like the people that the Lord wanted here would be here. Those that couldn't come would be watching. So from uh, COVID to the crazy weather, we just, uh, we're glad you're here. We're glad you've made it into the building. We pray that you would be kept safe. And as you're taking your Bible and heading to Genesis 1-1, or you probably got it memorized, uh, let me give you a couple of quick notes. 10.30 this morning, we are continuing our Life at Grace class, so if you've not taken that and you are a new or prospective member, you would like to move toward membership, that's something you're praying about. We have extra um, uh, boxes from Panera we would love to share with you, extra books. So 10.30, right after this service, head just up here, the second level, to the gathering room. You'll see plenty of people in the halls to direct you there. We would love to have you come to Life at Grace. Last time I announced this, uh, quite a few people took us up on the offer. And so we've had, uh, just since our beginning of the church year, school year in August, we've had over 250 new members, over 90 baptisms, and uh, we would love to have you become part of the family if you are feeling led of God to do so. So join us. I have something really cool and exciting to tell you. January the 26th, that's a couple of Wednesday nights from now, January the 26th, we have a business conference to go ahead and vote to move forward with the complete renovation of this worship center because of your generosity and freedom for the future, because of your generosity and that Christmas gift, because of your generosity and our overflow of where we are as a church, we are ready with cash in hand to move forward with this revision. So thank you for doing that. That's a big praise to the Lord. And if you're out there and you're saying, oh, but pastor, I really love this blue-green. I'd really love one of these pews. Well, you can talk to me about that. We would love for you to have a pew or two or a hundred. So we would be glad to donate that to you for the right price. So you just, uh, no, I'm kidding. We would love to bless you with that. But uh, we, we've got to vote on this now to order things to get ready for a summer revision, okay? If you've done anything related to building in the last year, you know takes a long time to get stuff. So we're going to be voting on that in a few weeks. And then finally, we've only got five spots left for our marriage getaway. Five spots. So if you haven't gotten on it, do it right now. You can even do it during this introduction. I will forgive you this time, okay? And thank you again for tuning in wherever you are. Please stay safe out there. I think they're going to get a little worse east of us, but we do ask that you be careful out there today. So we are looking at this series of Genesis, fact or fiction. We're learning Genesis 1:27. So let's say that together. We'll throw a few blanks in there, but you guys already know this verse. Would you join me in saying this? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. All right, that says a lot. We'll actually get to that in a few weeks, but let's say it with a few blanks. You ready? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Good. That's the concept of imago dei. It's super important. We'll get back to it. Last week, as we started this journey, we discussed briefly the author and audience. Remember, we said it's Moses by tradition. Anonymous according to Genesis, 
but ultimately it's the Lord, so it doesn't matter. It's God-breathed. But we believe God spoke by the Holy Spirit to Moses. It was penned in ancient Hebrew, and we get it today through translation, or if you read Hebrew, to go back and look at that. And then we looked at the audience. We said that there's a twofold audience here. First and foremost, God's chosen people. The book of Genesis teaches us about the establishment of the Jewish people through Abram or Abraham. If you're reading your daily Bible reading plan, I hope you have the, the, the uh, grace one or one of your own, you will be reading with me right now through Genesis. And we find that you have Abraham who has Isaac, who has Jacob. Jacob wrestles with God, is renamed, and he becomes Israel. Israel has 12 sons, and those are the 12 tribes of Israel. And then all this interesting stuff begins to happen with with one of his younger boys, Joseph, who's called up to Potiphar's house and who would eventually be a precursor, a pre-type of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who would bring salvation through his sacrifice, salvation to his household. But in addition to Israel, the book of Genesis is written to everybody else because it is our beginnings, our origins. So that makes us pick up on your notes today. It will be number three. We've looked at author and audience. Let's look at the aim. Let's look at the aim. Before we get into it, though, we need to read the Scripture. You've just gotten settled. That's okay. Stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. You ready? Here we go. It's gonna, you're going to be standing a long time. In the beginning, God created, in, again, Hebrew, three words, barashit bara Elohim, but five in English. Everything else that will come over all of this work will hinge on those words. In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it seems a little crazy to some folks maybe that we would spend weeks just on a sentence or a statement. But that statement is fundamental, it is foundational, it is critical and super vital to everything else we would study and learn and absorb and apply for the remainder of this book. And so, Lord, I pray today that you would speak to our hearts, that we would have open hearts and minds. And Lord, I know that a lot of folks couldn't be here, and so for those who are at home today, I pray that you would bless them. Let them be as attentive as they can and, and keep us safe, Lord, in this crazy weather and with this virus swirling. We pray again for your blessed hand of protection. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you and be seated. So the aim, the aim. Of course, we see that God is the author of the whole world, the heavens and the earth. All owe existence to his divine will. His sovereignty is made visible in the things that exist, the visible from the invisible. And God alone creates in the full sense of the word. I, I, I touched on that last week. We take the parts and pieces that the good Lord has given us, but only God creates ex nihilo, out of nothing, and he molds it all to fulfill his purposes. The aim here of Genesis is not to prove the existence of God, folks. The book of Genesis assumes God's existence. It assumes that fact. In fact, if you don't assume that, you have again the problem of infinite regress. So the Bible begins by declaring God is creator of all, the proper subject of creation story, as well as the entire canon of Scripture. So the purpose of the creation account, first and foremost, would be to magnify God as creator. The first purpose, the first aim, would be to magnify God as creator, to teach men and women to praise and serve him as the sovereign savior over all things. 
The same phrase, in the beginning, of course, starts John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so part of the Genesis narrative, coupled with the John narrative, says Jesus Christ should also be worshipped and praised as fully God. We also will find next week, as we continue in the journey, that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is part of creation, and He is to also be worshipped and magnified and glorified. And so the creation account really is reflecting the unity and the plurality of the Godhead. Remember we said even in God's name, Elohim, it is plural, plural of majesty, plural of a Trinitarian sense. It gives us a hint, if you will, of Trinity. But essentially, I want you to remember this. God creates with purpose. Let me show you something. From the Holy Land, a number of times having been, I love to find beautiful olive wood pieces. This is one of many that I have, and, and it's one that I keep in my office. And it's just a beautiful shaped cup. And of course, then it's got a lot of poly on it, so you could actually use it. But this olive wood, I don't know if you guys can pick up the grain here. It's just an incredibly, incredibly beautiful wood. And for those of you that will be traveling with us, you'll surely want to look at the markets and the places you can buy different olive wood. Well, look, I can just look at this and tell you that it was made with care and it was made with a purpose. I can look at the intricate detail and I can tell you that from the felt on the bottom to the rings that were surely done on a lathe to the intricacies, even blackening out some of these lines and polycoating it, I can tell you that this was made by a designer and it was made with a purpose. Now, what is the purpose? Well, for me, it's to put on the shelf and look at. I'm not really drinking out of this thing, okay. But you could. Is its purpose also maybe, if I wanted to hang a picture in the office, would its purpose also be to hammer nails? No. <laughs> that would not be its purpose. Now, you may argue, but you could hammer nails with it. And I'd say, well, you could do a lot of things, but would it be wise? No, it would be very unwise, in fact. This is made... With a purpose. Now, even the one who laid this out, even the one who intricately put these stripes in here, even the one who put the poly coat on it, still didn't make the olive wood. You see, it goes back to what we ended with last week. He still or she still didn't actually create the wood. God had to provide the raw material to get us this beautiful cup. When we see the glory of God, when the heavens declare his glory, when the firmament showeth forth his handiwork, what we must remember is that God did all of this with a purpose. What is the purpose? The heavens declare the what? Glory of God. The purpose of creation is to point to the creator. First and foremost, the purpose is to say, wow. I have another piece in my office I'll likely use across this series, and it is the Good Shepherd. It is hand-carved by one of Israel's most famous carvers. It's in a piece of olive wood, and it is absolutely spectacular. It is an incredible, incredible piece, and it shows such amazing detail in it. And it was the hands of a craftsman that made it. And when we look around at this world, that's what we see. Though the scope of Genesis is broad and the 50 chapters cover a large swath of time, the book of Genesis is showing us purpose. Now, I want to give it to you in your notes this way. 
I believe the great questions of life begin to be answered in Genesis. Now, listen, they don't find their completion. They don't, at least the last one, doesn't find its full completion, but they begin to be answered in Genesis. First, where did I come from? That's a big one that we see in Genesis. Where did I come from? Any of us that have lived long enough have wanted to know that question beyond our mom and our dad. Where did I come from? The, the, the most enormous of all the questions it would seem while we live would be, why? Why am I here? Why am I here? Why did, if you don't believe in God, time plus chance plus matter create me? If you're a Darwinian evolutionist, why did the primordial slime lead to me? Why? And then, of course, the one that Genesis begins to hint at but doesn't completely answer, but at least we begin to see precursors and shadows. Where am I going? Where am I going? Every person in the room who's old enough has pondered all of these at some point. Every person in the room, every person out there that's old enough has pondered these at some level in their life. And the theme of the Pentateuch here, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, is the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to Abraham through the birth, the creation, the establishment of the nation Israel. Genesis presents the historical and theological context and the background of this covenant, and a motif of blessing emerges, though also we find very quickly in Genesis the motif of disobedience and cursing emerges. So I've written this, a major theme in Genesis is blessing and cursing. In the Old Testament, the verb to curse meant to impose a ban or a barrier, a paralysis of movement or other capabilities. On the other hand, to bless means to enrich. We overuse the word. I know we do. We have a running joke in our small group or our grace group here about hashtag blessing because everybody puts blessing, blessing, blessed. Too blessed to be stressed, and we're all blessed. Well, praise the Lord. So what is blessing to enrich, to make prosperous, to be fulfilled, to be happy. A lot of people don't like that translation, but really in its core, blessing is happiness, contentment with such as what I have, contentment with who I am and where I am, contentment, blessed, enriched. Blessing and cursing are parallel themes throughout Genesis and the Pentateuch and blessing of life and prosperity of people and property. But the cursing of God results in death, disposition, destruction, And the basis of cursing or blessing, as we see it established in Genesis, is obedience or disobedience to the revealed will of God. How do you get the revealed will of God? The Word of God. And we act just the same way as parents, so don't act like God is weird in doing this. We may not use the words blessing and cursing, but the reality is Good things come to those who obey. Bad things come to those who disobey. It's pretty straightforward. You say, no, 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 I know the problem of evil. Bad things happen to good people. Well, okay, but you've misdefined good there because only God is good, only Christ is perfect. And you'd understand biblically that it rains on the just and the unjust. That good and bad happens, yes, to all people because it is a sin-cursed world. We're going to come back to that in a moment. It's very important when we talk about the next subject in the message. And so what we actually find is I receive more and consistent blessing when I walk in obedience to what God has for me than I do when I walk in disobedience. Of course there are anomalies. Of course there are times when things don't work out that way. But in a general sense, that is true. 
So how does it impact the way I can and should respond to God? Well, if I want the Lord's hand of blessing, which is not simply temporal uh, or temporal, then I seek to obey my heavenly Father. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus, John 14, 15 and following. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he'll give you another helper, the Holy Spirit, who'll abide with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells in you and will be in you. And Jesus said, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. Jesus said, if you really care for me, do what I ask. If my sweet Cindy asks me to do something, and I know she really wants it, whether it's something simple, can you grab this for me, can you fix that, can you do this, or it's something more complicated. If I tell her, baby, I love you, but I'm not going to do that. Now, baby, I love you, but now I don't really feel like doing that. Now, honey, I love you so much, but I don't want to do that. Do y'all realize I even went to the mall a few months ago? That is love, brother. I love you. I did go back and sit in the car. Oh, I told you. Did I tell y'all that? I told y'all that. I went back to sit. But I still love her. But if I say I love you over and over and over and over, but do not the things you ask of me, then do I love you? No, because love is action. Of course, now, that's just one of many examples here. But what I want you to know is the aim is the glorification of God. Glorification of God brings blessing and disobedience to God brings cursing. And this is a very common theme, the purpose, the aim, if you will, of Genesis, along with those major life questions. But now we get down to it. The thing a lot of folks have been waiting on. We've talked about the author, the audience, the aim. Now let's talk about the age. Now there are a lot of speculations and theories which try to relate Genesis 1 to what we think we know about the origins of the universe. I'm going to give you the most common theories. There are six of them. There are many. Now listen, please. Please out there listen. There are many more than these theories. Each of these theories has nuances and side roads. Yes, I have spent years studying them in depth. I don't need you to send me books. I don't need you to try to increase my library in this field. My mind is now set. You will waste your time in mine. God bless you. I love you. Here's the thing. I know I'm painting with a broad brush. I know, but you didn't talk about the amoeba and the didaboo. That's not my purpose. My purpose is to paint with a large enough brush and to engender in you great confidence that the Word of God is not in contradiction to what we see around us in the observable world. Notice I said observable because Darwinian evolution is not observable. It's baloney. Okay, so let's get into the main theories. First, and this is where a lot of Christians land, this one and the next one, the gap theory. This supposes, and there are different names of each of these as well, but I'm going to give you the most common names, the most common understandings, the gap theory. This supposes an original creation of order and beauty, then ruined by Satan's fall. Genesis 1, then, the chapter Genesis 1, describes a reconstruction. The name comes from the proposal of a very long gap between Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth, and verse 2, the earth was without form and voidless. So between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, there's this great gap. Now that gap may be millions, it in fact may be billions of years. That is the gap theory in a nutshell. The indefinite age theory, number two. Others call this the day-age theory. This was the theory I held much of my young Christian life. I'll come back to it. 
This supposes, day age or indefinite age, this supposes that the term day is figurative. So for the six days of creation, they're figurative, and that the creative activity of each day actually covers long periods of time or geologic eras. The day in which man appeared has not yet ended, meaning we're on day six right now where we live because these are stages. These are big periods of time, ages, if you will. Number three, creation in situ. Situ is um, as it appears. So uh, creation... Uh, suggest in this theory that creation is in 24-hour days. They're not thousands, not even billions or millions of years ago. So coal, petroleum, other very supposedly old elements were created in situ, in place. That's, that's what in situ means, in its setting, in situ. It, um, if you were going to try to write this out, it is uh, I-N-S-I-T-U. In situ. Uh, It's that the fossil record then is apparently old, but in fact it was created in its place. I'm going to come back to a hybridized form of that theory in a few moments. You then have number four, the revelatory day theory. Revelatory day. This is far less common. But some would argue that actually God revealed his work to Moses in seven, seven literal days morning and evening, day one, day two, day three, etc. that the evenings and mornings mentioned were actually uh, just relative to Moses' life, and God was trying to say, Moses, I'm going to tell you something very complicated that your little finite brain can't wrap itself around. I'm going to put it in a context of time that you can understand, and so I'm going to reveal it to you, revelatory day, I'm going to reveal it to you in this way, but in fact, it was much more complex than that. These are not actual days of creation. Okay. There is then the literary device theory. It says that the human author himself just used days to organize the material. The facts are true, just not the framework. The facts are there. Yes, there was a God. Yes, he created. Yes, he spoke it all into being. But the framework's all out of sorts. And so Moses just sort of made up this idea of days. After all, pre-creation, there wouldn't be days, right? I mean, we wouldn't actually have days because the earth's not actually rotating on its axis, nor is it going around the sun. So maybe it was just a literary device. And then, of course, what's come to the fore in the last few hundred years that was never prominent before is the myth theory. It even hit our own Southern Baptist Convention in the 50s and particularly in the 60s and 70s where many Southern Baptist professors and seminaries were teaching this theory, which is utter nonsense, but it is the myth theory. It's the first theory not advanced by Orthodox believers and suggests the passage is not historical in any sense. It's symbolic, merely, contains only theological truths, not historical truths, so that Genesis is not an actual historical record of creation at all. It is pure myth, and chapters 1 through 11 particularly are mythological. Now let me say something very clear to you, because I don't mind if you ask me a question or send me a message I just want to be very clear. Good, strong, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, conservative Christians will disagree as to these theories or hybridized versions thereof. You can disagree on what I'm about to share with you. Just like you can disagree about my eschatology. I'm a pre-trib, pre-mill guy. You can disagree with that, and we can be brothers in Christ. That is not a top-tier theological issue. In the, in the world of theological triage, this is not at the top, okay? So you won't get seen quickly in the ER of God if you're talking about the age of the world. But I do believe the evidence is quite overwhelming if we're honest with the data, 
The data being the revealed word of God and what we observe. Notice I said observe, not speculate, not theorize, but observe what we see actually around us. Most of high school and my early college days, I would have held to a day-age theory of creation. I was certainly a Christian, but I didn't uh, reconcile, I couldn't seem to reconcile in my mind that God created six 24-hour days, that God actually had literal days because everything I had learned in school and everything I had seen, uh, everything on television assumed the earth being multiplied billions of years and the universe being even older than that. Then in 1998, when I surrendered to God's call to ministry, I began to read and study the Bible for myself. I didn't just take Sunday school lessons or preaching uh, uh, at its word at face value. I began to try to answer questions in my own heart and mind, and I began to ask, do I trust secular science more than the word? Do I trust the word more than secular science? Or do I believe God is so sovereign that all truth is his truth, and actually the God of the word is the God of science, if we're honest with the science? I landed in the latter of those categories. So remember, the purpose of Genesis is not necessarily to answer all of our questions regarding creation. It's certainly not there to answer all of your questions regarding time. It has rightly been said that Genesis is not a science book. I get that, but please don't make that believe then that you have to believe that it's not accurate in light of reasonable, rational, even scientific thinking. So, where does that land me? I'm going to give you this first, then you let me explain it, okay? Because it's going to be a little different than the categories you may be familiar with. Over the course of many years of study on the subject, I, I even put my name in your notes. I don't want anybody saying, well, who's he talking about? Me, I, myself. Those are my pronouns. He, him, my, me. Got it? My pronouns. In this world, we've got to be clear. Over the course of many years of study on the subject, I, Pastor Bobby, have changed from an old earth creationist, I've always been a creationist, to a younger, make sure you put the ER in there, younger earth creationist. I will not call myself a young earth creationist. I'm not. I'm not exactly in line with Brother Ken Ham, though I appreciate him, Creation Research Institute, the work that he has done and answers in Genesis and the guys like him. I appreciate it so very much. I am simply not dogmatic that earth is six to 10,000 years old. I'm just not dogmatic. However, I am dogmatic that earth is not billions of years old. I am quite dogmatic that the idea of three to four billion years of Earth, 13 plus billion years of the universe is absolute hooey, and you don't have to believe that. I do not believe things are nearly as old as we think they are. Let me quote John MacArthur for you to start. He said this, the description of God creating heaven and earth is understood to be recent. He says thousands, not millions of years. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. Special, six consecutive 24-hour periods called days. And further distinguished by the phrase evening and morning. And scripture, according to MacArthur, does not support a creation date earlier than about 10,000 years ago. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say yes or no to that. I'd simply say I don't know. But I would argue that I'm certainly younger than I once was. And anything you'll hear on TLC and Discovery, I'm going to say, eh, too old, not necessary. I'm not sure that I'm completely comfortable saying the earth is just a few thousand years old, nor am I in any way, shape, or form now comfortable saying that day represents age or stage. And you say, well, why did you change so radically? This little thing called Hebrew. So my master's degree is with biblical languages. It's with Hebrew and Greek. 
And in the most elementary classes of Hebrew, you understand and learn very quickly what the word yom is, Y-O-M, if we're making it anglicized, Y-O-M, yom. And what you find is absolutely incontrovertible related to that word, I believe, with an honest study of Hebrew. Day simply means a literal 24-hour period of time. You say, Pastor, wait a minute. You've already said this is pre-day, at least on the first few days of creation. So how can it be that? Well, let me give you some things. A lot of this comes from gotquestions.org. I've recommended that website before. You should write it down. It's a fabulous website. I sent like five people to it this week. What I believe we get first in the age of the earth is a literal 24-hour day. Now, we can use it a few ways. It can refer to the 24-hour period of time it takes for the earth to rotate on an axis. It can refer to the period of daylight between dawn and dusk. It gets hot during the day. It can refer to an unspecified period of time. Well, back in my grandfather's day. But here, it's not just the word yom, is it? It's the word yom in a specific context. So how do we determine what Genesis 1 is actually saying? Well, the first rule of proper Bible hermeneutic is to let Scripture interpret Scripture, a text within a context. For a text without a context is a pretext. You'll make it a proof text. So we're going to get a text within a context. The Hebrew word yom is used 2,301 times in the Old Testament. Outside of Genesis chapter 1, yom plus a number used 410 times always means an ordinary 24-hour day. The words evening and morning together, 38 times, always indicate an ordinary, normal 24-hour day. Yom plus evening and morning, 23 times, always indicate an ordinary day. The context in which the word yom is used in Genesis 1, describing each day is with evening and morning, make it clear that the author and the vast majority of conservative scholarship, almost unequivocally until the last few hundred years, believe this as well, the vast majority would say that this means six 24-hour period days, evening and morning. It's the standard interpretation of Genesis 1 until the 1800s, mid to late 1800s, where a paradigm shift happened within the scientific community, and the Earth's sedentary strata layers are reinterpreted. See, the Earth's sedentary strata layers were interpreted for millennia as evidence of a universal flood. Then so many people, through what was wrongly called European Enlightenment. It was European goofiness. But the Enlightenment said, wait a minute, this isn't right. This couldn't be a flood. Surely there's no such thing. And they began to reinterpret the rock layers and the data as an excessively old earth. Some well-meaning but terribly mistaken Christians sought to reconcile this new anti-flood, anti-biblical interpretation with the Genesis account by seeking to reinterpret the word yom. The problem is it's not up to us to reinterpret words that had a proper setting. The thing that I'm absolutely and completely convinced on now is that yom means day and that God did this in the span of what you and I would call a week. You say, how is that possible? I'm going to give you three ways that that's possible, and I want you to get this down. But before I give them to you, let's just take an exercise of imagination. Suppose you look into the Garden of Eden one week after God created Adam and Eve. What would you see? What would you see? Two newborn babes lying there? Babies? You go up to this couple. You know that they're, they've gotten married because the Bible actually says that 
Eve was Adam's wife. So sometime God does a marriage ceremony there, according to Genesis 2, 24 and following. And you say, hello, couple. Now, keep your eyes up, right? They've not sinned yet, so things are wide open. But you're saying, hello, couple. How old are you guys? And they say to you, why, we're one week old. And Adam says, well, actually, I'm a little older than her, but about a week. And you say, you're lying. And they'd say, no, we're, we're really that old. God did not make them as babies because things don't work that way. God created them functionally mature. Now, we don't know how old. We don't know what they looked like. We do know, however, that they were adults, that Adam was capable of naming the animals, in fact. And so we do know that they were older. And so that brings me to three keys to understanding the age of the earth. And I've got way way too much material to finish this this morning. But I'm going to give it to you. You ready? Number one, functional maturity. I'll explain in a moment. Number two, the universal flood. Number three, the effects of sin. Functional maturity, the universal flood, the effects of sin. As you're jotting that down, I'll start with number three. When I first became a pastor in North Carolina... In the area I was serving, there was a major meth issue, a big problem with methamphetamines, both creation and distribution and lots and lots of use. I'll never forget meeting a, a, a very young family with three children. I would have told you upon initial meeting that that mom and dad certainly were not the parents, but the grandparents. They looked to me to be about late 40s, maybe early to mid-50s. In fact, they were in their mid-20s. What had happened? Anybody ever seen a meth head? A series of bad decisions had ruined their skin, had ruined their teeth. Their bodies were frail and shriveled up. The effects of bad choices had aged them. Ever known anybody like that? You said, that guy can't be more than, or that guy, he's got to be at least 60. That guy's got to be at least 70. Oh, no, no, he's 40. The effects of sin have compounded and multiplied on this earth. And in fact, the Bible says that the whole world is groaning. Now, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, because I have a tremendous amount of material on this, and because I have not done this in my time here, how much do you have left on your outline? Very little, right? Just one line? All right, I'll give you that line, and then we're going to come back and we're going to pick up right here next week. Because I've got too much to cover, and I've realized looking at my notes that if I do this, we're here another 30 minutes, and the next service is going to be mad. I'm going to come back, and I'm going to explain functional maturity. I'm telling you, once you get this, guys, it's going to blow your gourd. You're going to be perfectly fine, and you're going to say, oh, well, of course it's not as old as it appears. And when you understand universal flood, of course it's not as old as it appears. When you understand which came first, now think about this, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Biblically, there's only one answer, the chicken. The chicken had to come first. We're going to unpack all of that next week. I figured I've created too much stuff, and I did. So here's what I want to, you to understand as we draw to a close today, and I'm going to pick right back up with those three theories. We'll rework your notes. We'll give it to you. Here's what I want you to understand. Just because things look a certain way to you and to me or even to the scientific community doesn't mean they are that way. Nor does it mean that God is purposefully deceptive, and we're going to talk about that as well. We're going to unpack why this matters so much, because this theory of evolution and all that comes along with it, even theistic evolution, 
has undercut who God is, what God has done, how he has done it, and how we as Christians can stand up and in any setting, even an academic one, we can be confident that the word of God accords with reality. One thing we can be certain of is that if you trace Darwinian evolutionary theory to its logical conclusion, we would not have life in this manner. You cannot take two things in a binary sexual system. I'll be careful with my language. But you cannot take two things in a binary sexual system, which is what almost the entire world is. Yes, you have within the worm kingdom and a few other areas asexuality. But by and large, and this hits to the matter of the PC issues right now as well, with men having babies and men menstruating and men doing all of this. Come on, man. Let's get back to science. Here's the, and, the, and the word of God, but here's the reality. You cannot in a binary system with male and female create things by tiny, minute, micro changes and get what we have with life. It is an utter impossibility. So you cannot take part of a sperm or part of an egg and take away key components or maneuver those over time to become usable to create life the way we in this world, on this planet, understand life to come from. Yes, again, you'll find very few, but some examples of asexuality, but for the most part, we are in a binary system. Had God not created Adam and Eve the way he did, had God not created the trees and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the way he did, you could not have had the earth that we know. This is true no matter how far you look beyond out to space. Time, chance, and matter do not give us what we have. This is why so many in the field of academics are now backpedaling. Backpedaling at Harvard, backpedaling at Princeton, backpedaling in the great German and other European university systems saying, well, maybe there's something intelligent. They, they shudder to say someone. Maybe there's something intelligent behind this design. Maybe there's something more to it. Again, friend, I'm going to argue this as we close. You don't have to be a molecular biologist to understand something or someone intelligent made this. Be it person or machine or a combination thereof, this would never fall out of an olive tree. That's not the way it works. What we're going to do next time, and I'm sorry to do this, but you, I don't want you to feel like you're drinking from a fire hose this morning. Next time, I'm going to unpack for you functional maturity in a way that I hope makes great sense. We're going to hit just a smidgen on the universal flood, but we're going to get there eventually. In like four or five years, we'll be to chapter six. Don't worry about it. And then we're going to talk about the effects of sin a little bit more and what that would actually do to creation. Did you see it yesterday? Yesterday, the world, the world was groaning and bubbling up in volcanic activity yesterday. When you understand what sin did, not only to Adam and Eve, but to the world, to the way it rains upon the earth, to everything, you're going to say, wow. 
So it seems the word of God does align with what we observe and not just what those pseudo-intellectuals have foisted upon us in the minds of our children for generations now. Stand with me. And this morning, I, I want us to spend just a moment going back to what I said in the beginning. Genesis is a book of purpose. Sure, I could nail nails with this. Sure, I could put it under. It's so strong, I would imagine I could use it as a wheel chalk. I could maybe put it up under something that was off balance and maybe use it as a leg of some sort. But that is not the purpose for which it was designed. Some of you right now, you're hammering nails and you're not designed for that. Some of you right now, you're struggling because you don't know why you're here. You don't understand the purpose of life and you are uncertain as to where you are going. The Bible could not be clearer, my friend, that you were made imago dei in the image of God with a perfect plan and a beautiful purpose. That your sin has separated you from God and your sin is pulling you. Just like in the genetic code, sin morphs and mutates and makes us sick and destroys. The sin is destroying you and there's only one solution. The only thing you can take that will take away the sin is the finished sacrifice of Jesus. His blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And if you believe that Jesus died in your place for your sin, was buried and raised by the power of God the third day, by the way, you won't have any trouble with the resurrection if you believe the first few words of Genesis. God created new life in Christ, and God is setting about to renew his creation, and that starts in your heart and in your life. And if you will trust him today, you will find a purpose, and you will find a plan, and you will find a blessing and a contentment that you have never known. And we want to invite you to do that. I want to thank you for praying. I believe the Supreme Court got at least part of their decision right the other day. And praise God that we don't have some of the mandates on top of us that we had. But I want you to continue to pray for the state of this nation, with this wave of COVID to go quickly, with this weather to be okay and keep folks safe. But I would want to remind you that everything that's swirling and happening around us, don't get mad at God. Hate sin. Hate Satan. Hate the result that it's caused on this beautiful earth that God has made. And as I pray, if you feel led to come, if you feel led to pray about something, I know I had to cut it extremely short. You'll thank me next week when I dig down. But I really want you to understand, you do not have to be afraid as a Christian, as a Bible-believing, conservative, God-honoring Christian. You do not have to be afraid of what has been written out there in those science books. If we pay attention... It all accords with God's reality. In the beginning, God created. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Lord, I wanted to go further. I wanted to get more in. But I also want to make sure we do so with understanding. As we read in Nehemiah, when Ezra opened the scrolls and they stood before the people to read, he wanted to speak to those who had understanding. We want to make sure that we understand and then apply biblical truth. And my, my hope here, God, is that for Christians, this shores them up in their faith. That they understand that while, yes, Genesis is not a science book and certainly doesn't tell us all we would like to know, it tells us enough to know that you did it. It tells us enough to know how you did it. And there are repercussions of that for the way we live our lives today, all the way through even to Sabbath principles that we'll talk about. God, I pray that you would help us to believe you more than we believe, fellow man. Fellow man who's just as fallen, 
fellow man who's just as confused at times, fellow man who's groping in darkness many times to find light. Help us to walk in the light of your word and your love. Help us to walk in the light of Christ. And I pray if anyone needs to trust him today to find the real purpose they're created, may they come and in just a moment speak with us and share their heart so that we can share the love of God with them. In Jesus' name, amen.